Welcome to The Self-Made Theory, the podcast that's all about innovating, overcoming and prospering. We interview founders, entrepreneurs, innovators, CEOs and other exciting people about their amazing business journey. Over to your host, Ben Campbell, for this week's episode. A great interview in this episode of The Self-Made Theory with husband and wife duo Mel and Dean. In 2007, they founded Australian Fashion Labels, a business that now has five brands sold throughout the world, both online and through over 1,700 stockists in 26 countries. As you can imagine, the fashion world and retailing has changed pretty dramatically since their inception in 2007. And in our conversation, we discuss how they started a brand new business in the middle of the global financial crisis with no money, how they disrupted an industry that was doing four seasonal collections per year by producing 12 collections per year, which equates to about 500 new products every single month. We talk about the changes in retailing and the impact that's had on bricks and mortar, what online has done to department stores, and how to succeed in an industry that is low barrier to entry, but high barrier to success. My name is Ben Campbell, and this is The Self-Made Theory. Mel and Dean, welcome to The Self-Made Theory. Thank you. Thank you. We're here in your global headquarters on North Terrace in Adelaide, which is a pretty amazing, lovely building. Yes, we like working here. It's fit for purpose. It's an old 1926 building originally, but then fully renovated about three, four years ago. Yeah, it's lovely. It seems to be a bit of a thing in fashion to have a cool old building and then all this wonderful design and fashion wear inside of it. Yes, I think so. I think it inspires creativity and working in a nice environment. So let's start with uh, the elevator pitch for Australian fashion labels. Right. Well, uh, we are a global women's wear fashion business, five brands. We have a wholesale business, which we wholesale in 20-ish countries around the world. And then we have uh, a vertical retail model with Bunker being the vertical retail part of the business, Fashion Bunker. And we have a store, a bricks and mortar store in downtown Los Angeles, that being the only one, but most of the, the business is online. And we have dedicated uh, websites uh, for United States, UK, Australia, China, um, and then an international site as well. So, if, for example, if you're in the United States, you get on our website, it's a US dollar site and return address is, is domestic in the United States. So it's as though you're on a, yeah, right. a US dedicated website. Same for UK and, and China and all the rest. So that is my elevator pitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. I wasn't expecting to do one, so I'm sorry. I'm, what, a, what an amazing expanse uh, of a business. But it didn't start so grand, did it? No. Well, we started with one brand. Um, when Dean and I met, we started the business together and I was going to be looking after product and design mm-hmm. and Dean would be uh, managing the cash flow and the factories and logistics. And so we had that kind of uh, right from the start And so how long ago was that? That's uh, 12, 13 years ago. Okay. Wow. We've seen the fashion industry evolve over that period and it's been interesting. So, and again, we're evolving all over again. So it's a never-ending story, I would say. Yeah, it's an industry that reinvents itself on a regular basis because it's every month is a new collection. And so you're you're reinventing the product every month and... uh, 
We're also reinventing our business model on a regular basis as well. And we've seen marketing over the years evolve into new and fast-paced change. So Rise of social media and yeah. online. and yep. I can't imagine in many other industries where the product changes so regularly and so rapidly. I can't think of any others that are. It's actually quite amazing. It must be both exciting and tough to be a part of a business. Well, it certainly is. But I think one thing that Dean would address often is that you do find passionate people in this industry. It's exciting um, and highly creative. And so it attracts a really um, elevated mindset of Mm. people that bring so much passion to their job. And, you know, it's not just a job, it's a hobby too. We just, you know, you'd have, you're pretty 100% involved in that. So, which in other industries, it wouldn't probably see that same level. No, if we were building fridges, you'd be lucky to get two people in a room that were passionate about building fridges, but because it's the fashion industry, everyone in the business is passionate about it, Mm. whether it's accounting or logistics or whatever, they're all obsessed with fashion. Yeah, okay. So when you started your first brand, what was the ambition and the vision for your business at that point? Well, it was the global financial crisis. <laughs> so, um, Who starts a business in the middle of the global financial crisis? Oh, now you tell us. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is very, very true. But uh, for us, it, it did open up opportunities. I think um, it was a pretty stale market. There was a lot of um, Australian made and there, it was switching off pretty quickly. It was getting harder and harder to find anyone to make your stuff. And, um, and the price and point the, as well. Yeah, the price point was becoming more and more difficult to build a business on. So we identified that and... Um, uh, created something fresh for the market that was really affordable and and fast paced with twelve collections a year and giving newness all the time um, and that really worked and was really exciting until we tried to work out how to pay for our first order so you know going right back thirteen years ago was quite tricky and um, it grew really quickly so um, it definitely the market was begging for something exciting to talk about in store and, and you know we didn't have global online and we didn't have you know there wasn't a lot of us. Australian brands at the time so and certainly no social media it was all print based and television so it you know it, and um, bricks and mortar so it you know that's changed a lot since then but that's sort of how we started out yeah department stores were a very key part of a strategy back then um, yeah and then we um, saw another gap in the market uh, for a more contemporary style brand and uh, introduced Cameo. Finders Keepers was our first brand mm-hmm. uh, and introduced Cameo and employed a designer for that. And um, and then I was pregnant and we employed a designer for Finders and so we started to evolve those two brands. And then we had Keepsake in 2011 and that uh, was a dress brand. And then we had an opportunity a few years later with the fifth label um, to start a street and affordable price point, so a more casual brand. So the four brands sort of complement each other, but they sit alone in what they're trying to achieve for their brand direction. And so was the creation of the brands an opportunity because you saw a gap in the market or was it to have customers who buy cross-brand? Yeah, well, so as it turns out that we do on our online dedicated store for Bunker, we do have customers that are uh, shop cross brands and they can fill their wardrobes appropriately from whatever the brand is offering. Mm. Um, but we, we don't uh, essentially design brands in that 
with that mindset, they're true to brand and they and they focused on what that brand is offering to the market on their own right without cannibalizing their sister brand. Yeah, absolutely. They initially started though when we saw gaps in the market, which is why why they evolved in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. We also have uh, Jagger Footwear, which is completely you know a completely different product from garments. So then that's um, one of our fastest growing brands in the mix. So where did the idea for new brands come from? Who's the ideas person? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> this, is radio, this is radio. This is radio. Dean pointing a finger is not going to help. Pointing at me. <laughs> Can't you hear me pointing over that way? Because <laughs> you've both got very complementary but different skill sets, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. So background for you, Mel. As I grew up in the fashion industry. Yep. Uh, my parents were in wholesale and retail, so I was always around it and I was very influenced by that. I actually thought that was completely normal choice for me. It was just a natural fit. It was always going to happen that you were going to be in this industry in some way. I finished school, went straight to the Adelaide Fashion School in TAFE and immediately opened up retail stores and started designing and wholesaling myself and had retail stores when I met Dean um, and I had a, a locally manufactured brand at the time. Um, that I was looking to get out of and looking for someone to help me. It was a lot on your own. And um, Dean's background? Yeah, accounting, uh, then sales and marketing and product development in fashion. So do you both have very defined roles today in terms of the crossover? Or no, Dean's say- not designing any dresses. <laughs> <laughs> no, no modelling. Most them, of the relief no. everyone Good. in the building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, so very defined. Yeah, we're still, we're still in the same roles as when we started. So. Yeah. so I'm managing director and Mel's creative director. Yep. And uh, my side is very much the sales business side. and Mel's is- Mine's very focused on product. We do, we do crossover a bit on, you know, marketing and sales and things as well. Oh, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, with marketing, sales and um, business decisions, we we work on all of that together. So when tough decisions need to be made and no one agrees, how does that happen? Uh, I don't know if that's happened yet. happened, yeah. Are you serious? Family, people in business together. Quite rare, I know. It's rare. Um, Yeah, there's not a lot of husband and wife teams that can work together. Although, to be honest, I'm finding, well, whether they work well together or not is another story. I can't really talk for them. But I have seen there's a lot more families that are in business together more than I've ever noticed before. Mm. But um, I don't know. I think we're a good team. We've always managed, even through the highest of stress, we've always taking care of each other, I guess, and never, it's never been a problem. So let's, fingers crossed, it doesn't Absolutely. come Absolutely. <laughs> let's let, let this podcast not be the start. you <laughs> <laughs> done. Yeah, no, we're a good team. So from the outside, I imagine most people would look at the fashion industry and go, that's amazing, I want to work there. How glamorous? What happens behind closed doors? I imagine the glamour is not. Oh, no, it's all glamour. No, it's not. Don't, <laughs> don't tell me that. That's not true. I'm sure of it. You know, I guess um, it's it's definitely evolved so quickly, and there's so much opinion, and and actually, it's never been such a busy space. So you know, there's um, every day there's a new brand launching, and really, really good ones too. Um, but I think it's easy to get into. Yeah, there's a very low barrier to entry. Putting a range together is quite cheap and easy, but there's a very high barrier to success in getting the right customers, having the right social strategy, sales, marketing, logistics problems and manufacturing problems, doing websites, opening stores, all those sorts of things. So it's extremely expensive to be successful, um, but very easy to get into. And I've never seen so many new brands as what there are currently over the last couple of years. And there are literally thousands and thousands of new brands opening all the time. And it's you know, all these fashion schools are churning out, you know, young girls that are potentially talented and they're all putting ranges together and think, oh, I'll just do it myself. 
and they're all launching brands. don't know if any of them are making any money, but uh, um, there's it, certainly a very big proliferation of brands at the moment, which mm. is all, you know, it's diluting the sales that are there. Mm. Ch- everyone's chipping away at the market. Mm. I think in a lot of industries it's much easier to start up now than it's ever been. Mm. Digitisation, easy to get global reach, et cetera, uh, now compared to previously. What's the difference between all of the brands that launch and the ones that are successful? Because I imagine there's, you know, if there's a thousand new brands, not a thousand survive. What's the difference between the ones that survive? Lots and lots of marketing dollars seems to be helpful. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, it's a very long list. Having the right factory, having the right price, having the right customers, the right sales channels, uh, the right distribution, mm-hmm. uh, the right fittings manager, uh, and the right social strategies, the right influencers wearing your product, and uh, getting it into the right retailers. There's so many different aspects to to getting it right, and. You know, there's a lot of influencers now that will have 50,000 followers or 100,000 followers who think I can launch a brand. Mm. And I don't know if that strategy is going to work or not yet, but that, that seems to be the, the latest trend as well. So, Is influencers part of your strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I think I've, for I've, anyone in fashion, the influencer is the quickest route to market. Um, there are plenty of other people reporting on different um, kind of probably stepping back and trying more old school type of marketing. Probably they've capped their kind of dollars they're prepared to put into social marketing um, and they're looking for other avenues because, you know, it doesn't necessarily, once you peak it at that point, then, you know, you're just shoving more money at it, but not necessarily is that the right. Um, diminishing returns. Yeah, mm. and it's not telling an authentic story either. You're just buying your marketing. So I think there's a lot of a lot of what we're talking about also is how to have more of a balance on that. But, I mean, it works. If it works, you should still do it, right? So when you're looking at potential influencers or brand champions for you, do you align their person, their personality, what they believe in, their core values, et cetera, to yours? Is that important? There is most certainly a trend in choosing a more um, intelligent partner in that respect, that whether they're like a, a business leader or a, someone that's a writer or an artist or someone that's not just a look hot in this kind of conversation. That's a big player on the table in our conversations um, and sort of working more along the lines of that. Also having a global reach is also looking for those influencers that have got a good grip on the global market. They're hard to find too. But when you find them and professional and understanding design um, and the and and the lead times on that sort of thing, you know, so it, there are there are some good ones out there, and then there's some that are up and coming. So why women's only fashion? Why not do men's ranges as well? We did try menswear. We did try it for a little while, but it's a completely different market, and um, we don't have a creative director for menswear. And men buy differently. Uh, it's just you're completely reinventing the the wheel for to do menswear. So, from a marketing strategy point of view, your customer base, your factories, your fabrics, your design, everything is is quite different. Our focus, our key focuses are Australia, America, and China, and the men's fashion is so broad across those markets. So, you know what they wear in LA and in New York and in Shanghai, the men dress really differently. So, mm. it's um, we really ended up with a very New York-based fashion brand 
and the scope for that was quite small. And the number of menswear stores is probably a 100 to 1 ratio of womenswear yep. to menswear stores. So trying to get volume was very difficult as well. Men's Vertical does the best job out of most menswear brands. So given the markets that you're in globally, do the brands have different success in different markets or is there a universal you know, recognition that you know, this brand is going to work well in New York or Shanghai as well as Australia? Yeah, so we do put a lot of focus into design for the different territories and we know what works and doesn't work in each territory. So we do have to be quite broad in the offerings to be able to please everybody. Yeah, absolutely. We, look, we spend a lot of time on data to build yep. that. Talk to me about selling into China because most people, when they think fashion, they think buying from China rather than selling into China. Mm. Uh, how long have you been selling into China for? Well, we do both. We source from China and then we opened our China office five years ago. Five, six years ago? Yeah, about that. And We are one um, of the very first to do that. Yeah. Was that an easy thing to do? No. No, it's <laughs> and just getting the right approvals and licences and uh, registering a company. It took quite a few years to get everything in place. We can now, after about four years, it took us to uh, operate just like any other Chinese company. It's a... Uh, fully wholly owned subsidiary based in Shanghai, but we can uh, do wholesale, retail and distribution and operate how we want to operate in China. <laughs> Getting the money out of China took the longest. It took a number of years to get approval to actually be able to re- repatriate funds here, yeah. but that's all in place now. So it's working quite well. We've well now it's, got- a big, it's a big effort to go to. The market must be significant for you to have both that time and money investment to do that. Yeah, we, we took a very slowly approach uh, to launching in China. You, you read and hear a lot of horror stories about brand, and especially in our industry, uh, ASOS and all sorts of people yeah, have really big gone players. in a number of times, yeah. spent hundreds of millions and then, you know, closed down over there. So we, we did a very slow, careful approach and uh, and it is growing and it's growing every year. So it's not the biggest part of our business yet, but it, it certainly is growing. And um, we've got a Tmall site now for one of our brands and we'll eventually launch a domestic Tmall. So we sell domestically on Tmall there. Most international brands will have a Tmall international site and, and do cross-border deliveries from outside of China into China, whereas we have a domestic Tmall site just like any other Chinese business and we deliver domestically mm. uh, for our Tmall sales. We also have a website, Chinese website in Mandarin. We deliver from Hong Kong into the Chinese market. But you know, certainly uh, Timor is a big part of our strategy for, mm. for China. And where's your biggest market today? The US. The United States, yeah. Yeah. Is that by a long way? Yeah. Yeah, that would be about 40% of our, our business is, is the United States. Yeah, right. Wow. So tell me about the size of the organisation today. How many people do you have working across, across all countries? Uh, I've got about 90. Okay. Yeah, about 90 people. With the way we've changed our business, that's probably about the right size. Yeah, we have an office in Los Angeles, which does sales support and distribution and manages the retail store. Marketing. PR and marketing as well. And then we have a similar arrangement in China and Shanghai and showrooms in uh, across the US, uh, New York, LA, Dallas and Atlanta, uh, and then Guangzhou and Shanghai in China. And then we have a Melbourne office which does sales, manages the sales for Australia. And then we have the head office here in Adelaide. Mm. And so do you have marketing people in region because it's important to have the message localised? Are they local sort of US-based yes. people? Yeah, yeah, very much. And then, and so, and particularly China where language is different, all the social media channels are different, uh, the culture is different. So it's you know really duplicate. Everything we do for the West we do again for China. 
Yeah, right. So tell me about running a global business with time zones all over the place from Adelaide. How hard is that? It's not too bad. We're pretty efficient at that. Um, We do have a lot of uh, communication tools. Everyone in the office is always talking to someone overseas, interstate. You know, I think we realised early on that you can't be everywhere. So China's a similar similar time zone. It's out by uh, two hours, I think. So we get a lot of crossover during the day. Los Angeles, we get an hour or two crossover, depending on daylight saving each day. The UK is the most tricky. Mm. Yeah, that one's annoying. One, but um, (laughs) we we don't do that every day, so that's okay. Um, That's usually late at night talking to the UK. So what sort of communication platforms do you use? Uh, GoToMeeting, uh, Skype they use as well. WhatsApp, um, there's a whole bunch. All, all <laughs> yeah. the usual players. All of them yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah. And different ones in China? Yeah, WeChat, WeChat Weibo. Yeah. What's the other one? I don't use it but the designers talk to our production team over there yeah. on another form of social, whatever it is. Yeah, okay. So you're 13 years in now? Yes. What surprised you along the way that you weren't expecting when you started out? Maybe just the top one. <laughs> <laughs> you I get one of those every day, I think. Uh, I guess it wasn't really a surprise. I guess it's more uh, a challenge, Was um, which is a funny old challenge because we were doing 12 collections. So every single month we'd come out with a 75-piece collection, to 75 to 100-piece collection per brand. And, um, so hang on. So 75-piece collection every to, month. Yeah. So we had about 500 new designs a month across the business, which we were, we'd have three to four weeks to show the customers. You have to price it, manage all of that, all the sales tools and everything, shoot it, da da da, da a million and one things. So we were doing like 100 photo shoots just on Lookbook a year. Oh, my gosh. And then over the Christmas break we had a bit of time to kind of rethink how we work um, and we went to market and we've been doing that now for 12, 13 years. And, of course, it was very disruptive for the first seven years but probably exhausting now for the last few years. Um, so we we took a bold move to move to a traditional sales model. We're in the first six months of that transformation of our business, which is good reducing complexity, like we said. Um, and so there's a lot of lessons learned and a lot of process and a lot of rigor around making that move into, you know, changing everything you do and bringing people along for the journey. So that has been probably, I guess, not a surprise. So what do you see, what do you mean by a traditional sales model? Yeah, so sorry, a traditional selling model is seasonal. So you have four seasons. Yep. And you would, um, and you would show the three deliveries at the same time. So January, February, March being season one, yep. and because we have different hemispheres, one's high summer. So why did you start out with such a high product um, life cycle at the beginning? Yeah, it was to excite the customer in was the it? beginning yeah. and to show newness all the time um, and also to capture the budget along the way more often than your competitor. That worked for a really long time. But I think... I'm so excited about going seasonal. I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really am. There's yeah, a, it's really simplified working, our business. Yeah, working in a more thoughtful way mm. and not burning through it. It's definitely the right choice. It's just been a bold move because it's the unknowns that come with it. You know, the benefits that we felt from having it and then changing our mindset. Um, and hopefully, the surprise will be that it's great. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think another surprise over the last couple of years has been the, the speed of the decline of department stores, and not just here, but globally. globally. And so uh, you're seeing similar trends in places like the US compared to Australia. Barney's has gone into receivership. Yeah, and- um, 
particularly the US. I mean, it's been a rapid change over the last few years for that market. And what do you think is driving that? What's driving that on the consumer side? I mean, everyone will say online, but I assume there That's are other. That's because it's online. Is that the is yeah. that the main reason? It's, I mean, you get a better experience going direct to a brand today than five, ten years ago. You'd go into a department store and you'd get a great cross section of all these brands, and it'd be a you know, reasonable brand experience, whereas now brands are opening up their own flagship stores and they're having a far better experience if you go in there than the little tiny snapshot you see in a department store. And, you know, you go into a department store and you might struggle to find someone to serve you and their product knowledge is not as good, whereas now you can get onto the brand's website and get some great information or you can go into their flagship store and have a great experience. You said you've got your own store in LA? Yes, Fashion Bunker or BNKR is... As others will know it. Yeah. Is there an expansion strategy around taking other brand, others of your brands to bricks and mortar? It's a bit of an unknown at the moment. We have had more bricks and mortar stores in the past, which we've closed in Australia. And really just all about simplifying the business, growing our own online as well as growing our wholesale and just waiting to see how the bricks and mortar pan out over the next few years. And I mean, it's a lot of people closing down bricks and mortar. There's still a lot of people opening ones as well, but it's in a state of flux at the moment. So I'd be reluctant to commit to. Yeah, I think there's definitely, I mean, the small small footprint store and also the seasonal pop-up I've seen as a trend as well. So opening in those busy summer times where people are out looking and shopping, I'm seeing more and more of that as well. So this is, we're just sort of watching what's happening in the market with the bricks and mortar and Definitely our Cameo and Keepsake brands do probably resonate in a small footprint boutique models flagships type situation. But I would say that our like something like Finders Keepers is definitely a digital girl player. Like she shops online, no problem at all, knows it's going to fit her, understands her look, and that's the right place. It doesn't need the bricks and mortar. Yep. Um, but, you know, the fabrications and the extra trims and the details and the finishes of the other two more elevated brands, I think the customer likes to shop in store for that so I think that's probably the difference. Mm. What's the toughest thing you've had to deal with in business so far? I guess cash flow probably. Yeah. You know we we started the business you know we're both divorced and broke when we got together and then let me get this straight divorce, divorce broke in a recession. Yeah mm. global, financial, global crisis. financial crisis. So we Sold our cars. You've done, you've done, you've done it remarkably yeah, well. Well done. <laughs> sold our cars, took out some credit cards and sold whatever we could find to fund the business and we've self-funded all the way through. So it's mm. uh, so that's been highly challenging. Yeah, there's challenges around that. But also highly rewarding. I mean, there seems to be a bit of a celebration in entrepreneurism these days that everybody celebrates the money they raise from mm. an equity raising. People forget to celebrate making money and cash flow, which are the kings mm-hmm. of business. When you started, was that was that the strategy, flog everything off, get as much money to start the business, or did you have to do that along the way as cash flow I've had to do dictated? That along the way. <laughs> yeah, we've had to do that several times along the way as the business has grown. You know, there was a, f- a few years there in particular where it was growing very rapidly. You know, you get the excitement from getting big orders but then the realisation of having to fund it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's been some of those moments where we get very excited about, you know, some great months of sales and then we're like, oh, God, how are we going to make that happen? So, mm. But it's, it's been fun along the way as well. Mm. What excites you about the future other than going to seasonal instead of new collections every month? Yeah, I mean, well, that is, uh, for me right now, that is the exciting part because it's so new and um, and it's winning good results. 
So I guess that's the excitement for us at the moment is to see that. I guess working, we get excited about our marketing strategies and the things that we're working on within the business. Yeah, seeing it on influencers or celebrities or still get excited about things like that and having great product in the market that people get excited about and sales. Winning good sales with good customers. Yeah. I've read a bit about your focus on corporate social responsibility. Mm. Can you talk to me about that? Because that seems to be a growing trend inside of fashion. Yeah. I mean, well, our staff are also driving. Um, are they? They're, yeah, they're driving a lot and they're really passionate about it. So, Correct. you know, it's definitely a, a focus in all our meetings. We're talking about what we can do better and we're moving all of our ticketing over into being uh, recycled and the way we manage our own internal, we got rid of all of the little um, waste paper baskets from all of the desks so that we recycle correctly and they're talking about the fabrics that we're using, we're sourcing sustainable fabrics and trying to work in that area. Uh, wherever possible and they're educating themselves on on that market. Reduce the amount of plastic in our packaging and you know, looking at all aspects. And I, and I assume you're doing that because it's important to you, not necessarily because it's important to your customers. Yeah, and it's important to everyone. Like Mel said, I mean, these guys are young and they care about the planet and the future, which is great. And we do as well. And it's um, they go to the conferences could, on sustainability. Yeah, and we that. couldn't drive it if it was just us. Hmm. And it's actually being driven more from the staff. So, Great. Yeah, they're yeah. passionate about it. They're really passionate about it. I think it's almost an expectation from the consumer that you're addressing these problems globally. I think it's not necessarily do you want to do it or don't you want to do it. I think it's a high expectation that hmm. everybody's working on that. So, what does Australian fashion labels look like in two years' time? Yeah, I think we'd have some strong brand stories to tell. Um, I think we'll be able to talk to the customer individually on our brands through the websites. I think we'll be talking very strongly about the products that we're driving with less products, not more. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot more of the same, I guess, but just doing what we do better. Better, yeah. yeah. And what about geographical expansion? Are you happy with your current geography and footprint? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's still opportunity in um, in. We don't have great coverage in Europe yet. We've got good coverage in the UK, but not the rest of Europe. Still a lot of opportunities there. But we want to grow China a lot more, um, the US more, and even the Australian market. We want to grow that more. And that's really the, the key focus is US, China, and Australia for the near future mm. with a little bit of a focus more on Europe. Now, uh, just scratching the surface in US and China. So there's a long way to go there. Exciting times. Mm. Congratulations on building such a exciting business with such geographical reach in what really is a very tough industry to work. Thank you. Yeah, well done. Thanks for spending time telling us your story on the self theory. It's our pleasure. Cheers. What a great story that is. I absolutely love the fact that as a husband and wife team, they work so well together. I hear plenty of stories from businesses that are family-based where being related doesn't go that well. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and are faced with the challenges in your startup, scale-up or your established business that you're just not sure how to solve for today, then contact us to discuss how our executive coaching and advisory practice can help you. You can email us on coaching at theselfmadetheory.com. Until next time, keep innovating, overcoming, and prospering.